You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, everyone who listens to this podcast knows we're social studies folks. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think the cat's out of the bag. It's at this point they know. And you know, there is so much talk, I think, about interdisciplinary learning that happens in education. It's like the paint thing, right? Like you do the finger paint where like everyone, hold on, you teach in silos and that's just like painting a room blue. But if you paint with everything, it's interdisciplinary. There's an analogy there that I definitely screwed up, but I've seen an image yeah. with words I've, underneath. I have no, I haven't heard that one before, but sure. Yeah. So we could, we could talk about different colors of paint, but I feel like as much as I like talk about interdisciplinary learning and getting into quantitative, you know, type of metrics, talking about math and science, I don't know if I'm actually, I actually ever do it very much. Right. Like I became a social studies teacher because I was really interested in that content. Yeah. Yeah, so you're not like um, bringing in like the hard sciences into your courses. Wait, I, I don't even know what I'm saying. Hard yeah, sciences. I know. See, that's like, see how see how lost we get when we even just start to try to. So let me ask you. Let me use a couple keywords and let's see what kind of thoughts they evoke for you. How about I want to start with the word data. What What do you think of as an educator when you hear the word data? It's funny. I was just asking asked this question at a meeting this week, um, and I, I'll answer the same way. I think that's a mispronunciation of the character from Star Trek, the next generation. Mm, it should be data. Is that right? Yeah. I think that's how it goes. Uh, so we did Jordi LaForge. <laughs> so is there anything beyond a, a science fiction TV character that you think of? That, um, I guess I'm looking at like charts. I'm looking at like, um, so we're okay. So we're looking at, uh, we're talking about world war one right now. And so we have like a casualty chart. And so those are different parts of data we're talking about uh, for folks in different countries. Nice little chart, killed, wounded, and uh, captured. It's very dark, um, but that's a, a fun little piece of data. Not fun. Yeah, the chart, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. you used a couple adjectives in there with that chart. Yeah, no, not, there was. <laughs> but yeah, so like data could inform like how citizens understand, for example, a war effort or something like that, right? And I know, oh. yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, so like, right. So we're talking about the American system, which I totally dig. I think it's very interesting. And so like, I found all these really neat graphs that some really smart person put together about like the price of tariffs and what that did to the economy over time. And so showing that to students to have them like uh, really quickly get information from was uh, was a good way to really look at like the 1810s, which gets really more exciting as I talk about it. Like you can just imagine the excitement these students have when they look at these really quick data points. Um, yeah, it is actually, that, it's some, it's some, what? That's probably the most excited anyone's been about the 1810s since maybe like the 18 aughts when they were just excited about the future. Could you imagine? Right? They're like, oh my God, in 1810, we're going to be able to do everything. We're going right. to have like flying horses. Yes. No, I, I, I think they would have been like excited about like possibility of like chalkboards or something. Right. Oh. Um, 
but but yeah so like i i feel like in social studies we don't do probably enough with data right because they're yeah. i mean data informs decisions right like and and social studies is focused on the roles of citizens and the decisions we make and data often informs that um and in education there's a lot of data thrown around and i think a lot of it misinterpreted all right i got one other word for you how about science when you think of as a teacher what do you think of when you think of science i know it's blinding yeah what does that mean uh like people get blinded by science go on right uh, i don't know the rest of the words to the song but it's this she blinded me with science she blinded uh so yeah i mean we do talk about like the impact of like the scientific revolution that's something that we do but we don't really handle too much we don't really spend too much time talking about like the the um we more so talk about like what like the scientific revolution means in a world context, like how it impacts society. So like we see the shift between religion, like, the church and the state and what science, like um, the whole thing with what the sun rotating around the world. Nope. <laughs> the world rotating around the sun. Right. Copernicus. So, like, yeah. But the heliocentric. Even when I'm getting more into this, like it's more so on the, um, the societal impact of it rather yeah. than the actual science behind it is what I, what I handle. Absolutely. So I right. Really I, I feel the same. I'm very interested in science and technology, but not the science part of it. Right. Like I'm very interested in the social part of it, the impacts that it had. And so we're going to be though, a little bit, he had like, we're gonna... right. Like he's fun to throw around like Newton. Um, he, uh, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah, that's, that's like a Newton's law, right? That's a that's a phrase, right? So I'm just gonna say this, Michael. Today we're talking about data Did science, and so you see, I have brought together two words that we just talked about. We might be a little out of our wheelhouse today, but it's a good opportunity for us to learn. That's a really good point. Wait, did you bring people here to talk to us? Yeah, they they I brought them here. Yes, I, I uh, so we would like to welcome into the podcast. We have a trio of guests today. We'd like That's to walk it, welcome in Ryan Estriato, Josh Rosenberg, and Jesse Mostapat. Do, do, do you all mind telling us a little bit about who, who you are? Who is the trio who we are speaking with? My name is Ryan Estriato, and I work for uh, a, a project called the Equity, Disproportionality, and Design Project. Uh, and I am one of the co-authors of a book that uh, that we'll be talking about today called Data Science and Education Using R. And I'm going to pass it to my co-author and friend, Josh. All right. And I am going to turn to chicken order as the overarching principle uh, for how we will introduce ourselves. And actually, Jesse, I believe in um, chicken order, which we'll describe next. I think you're actually, you're actually next. So Ryan, if you don't mind, I'm going to curry that along to Jesse uh, for the next introduction. Please do. All right, I am Jesse Mostpeck. I am a data science evangelist at R Studio and co-author on data science and education using R. And uh, my name is Joshua Rosenberg and I'm a assist an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee. And I am actually fourth in chicken order, which implies that there's a missing third chicken. Just because I'm sure, um, based on the look on your face, Michael, that you're wondering what is chicken order? Um, we wrote a book together and at one point we had to decide what order to list our names in. And, uh, I believe that there is a, um, 
so okay this 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 is getting kind of quickly into the content but i'll try to be quick here there's a way in the software that we focused our book uh kind of oriented our book around to um randomly generate uh chicken names based on people's real names and so we we dutifully entered our five names into this tool and it output our names as if we were chickens. This is all making perfect sense, I, I, I'm sure. And then we ordered, like, Michael, the confused look is not getting any better here. And then we ordered our, um, we determined our authorship order based on these randomly generated names. So this was kind of a cute way for us to kind of play around with, with the authorship order and, and really recognize that the five of us worked on this together, which is really the point here that I'm trying to get to. So do are these like, like um, how do I say this? Names that chickens call themselves or names that people call chickens? Yeah, see, yeah, Ryan, that's what, that's what yeah. I thought. I thought, don't chickens just have human names given to them? Yeah, so that that is how it was done. And I think that chickens, the chicken order really illustrates um, one of the fundamental ways this group operates in that it is very egalitarian and very collaborative and no one felt comfortable being, oh, I'm first author or I'm last author. No one felt comfortable saying, I wanna be in the position that has the most clout. So what is the best way that we can come up with this? Um, and then we all folded when our publisher was like, why are your names in that order? And not one of us could bring ourselves to explain the chicken story to Rutledge. Yet, yet you told it here. <laughs> We're getting brave. <laughs> brave in our chickens. Could you just, what is someone's chicken name? I just need at least one. I think Isabella's, uh, who is not here today, uh, hers was Olive, I think. Hmm. So I they are see. names that are just, they're not they names are. that chickens, so like a chicken wouldn't call another chicken Olive, I don't think. I don't think but so. They were call a chicken an Olive. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, um, the way that we got the names was we found a, uh, a program that somebody had written um, in the programming, statistical programming language that we use that will auto generate. So if you've got like a farm of 50 chickens and you need to name them all, rather than assign them all to the chicken, you would use this, uh, the programming language that we use is called R. You would use R and this program that this uh, statistician wrote and you would assign the chicken names that way. Well, I really do admire the the egalitarian approach, right, to this because that is a real issue, right? I mean, I think in in academia there can be a lot of hierarchy. There can be a lot of like, how do we get credit? And some of that's important, right? Like people deserve credit uh, where it's due. But um, you know, I think that this is a really cool way to kind of think about, yeah, have the auto assign chicken names. Of course, these could be any kind of animal names, right? Is that is that correct? Okay, I didn't overemphasize the the chicken part well can you can you tell us a little bit more of each of your the backgrounds you each have in education or related to the the work we're about to talk about so we understand a little bit how you got to this point can we so go I, reverse um, chicken order let's do reverse chicken order go for it jesse it's actually josh but go ahead josh I wish we could find our chicken names actually, because one of us inexplicably was assigned two names. Like it, like I think that was just the name that the one of the chickens happened to be called. So they were they were pretty cute, and unfortunately, they seem to be lost at least temporarily to to history. So maybe it was a chicken with dissociative identity disorder, right? Yeah, it's, I it's possible that may be accounted for in the model. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, apart from spending my time um, uh, working on uh, problems related to chicken, uh, chicken names and ordering, ordering them, I uh, used to be a high school science teacher. That was my, uh, the beginning of my career, and I taught in North Carolina, and then began a graduate program, mostly in educational technology at Michigan State. And in the course of studying at Michigan State, I became interested in analyzing data uh, in uh, specifically data from social media platforms. Um, and that kind of asked me to use tools other than Google Sheets and Excel, just because of the type of data and the scope of it. And in the course of trying to kind of um, do things like visualize this data or try to just count up how many uh, like how many posts uh, there were with a specific hashtag, I found myself starting to use this language that uh, Ryan mentioned, the statistical uh, programming language and software R. And uh, that kind of has carried me through the present and sort of evolved into a second line of interest, which is working with kids to support them to work with data as well. So my current work is sort of organized around using tools like R to do things that I sometimes label as data science. And then the other side of the coin, supporting K-12 students, specifically in science, because that used to be my home base, to themselves work with new sources of data or to work with data in um, ways that are a little bit different than we typically have engaged students in science classes and working with data. Um, I can go. So my background is I have a bachelor's of science in biochemistry. I went to a college that was really focused on hands-on experiential education. Um, and it took me from hating science to getting a degree in science and loving science. Um, and I ended up taking a fellowship to work on my PhD at MSU Bozeman, studying uh, immunology and infectious diseases, focused primarily on neurosynaptic transmission of the infectious prion protein. And grad school, just after about three and a half years, it wasn't really quite the right fit for me. Um, and I moved to New York City and there was some time in between, but ultimately I ended up joining a teaching program uh, with Hunter College and New Visions for Education. And so I was a high school science teacher in New York City. I was really focused on doing hands-on science work in the classroom. I was a primarily biology teacher. Um, and while I was in graduate school, I had been exposed to statistics and, and some programming with R. And what I ended up doing in my classroom was taking all of the end of year Regents exams and essentially doing a text analysis to figure out for every chapter, what are the terms kids are most likely to encounter on the exam? And then really teaching in depth uh, systemic approaches to understanding, you know, five or six key terms in those concepts and using that to prepare kids for the state exam. Um, teaching is hard, as we all know, and I ultimately left teaching and did a big pivot into data science uh, at a time when data science was still very much people were still defining it as a career. And it was very easy to say, yes, I'm a data scientist and no one could really, there were no certifications, there were no formal courses or degrees you could get. Um, and so now I work pretty firmly within data science and kind of machine learning, deep learning um, software companies. And I use a lot of my educational background to build content to help other people 
understand products or get involved or start learning various programming languages or features of software and technology. So I uh, was not a classroom teacher. I started as a school psychologist in 2001. And I did that for a little while. And then uh, after a few years, uh, got to, um, to become an administrator at the district office. And um, that's really where I started working with a lot of, uh, a lot of data. And, and I started doing things like having to, uh, um, to predict caseload sizes for special education providers. Um, and I learned pretty quickly that I wanted to do um, things beyond what a just a spreadsheet would allow me to do. I wanted to work with, work with some bigger data sets. Um, so in uh, 2012, I started learning how to use data science tools and, and learning how to code. Um, when I started bringing those data science tools into um, my day job, my education job, I learned pretty quickly that if I can't figure out how to talk to non-data scientists um, about the work that I'm trying to do, then no, nobody was want, nobody was going to want to try any new things with me. And so, that's the latest thing that I've been thinking a lot about, which is um, what are ways that we can talk about data so it's more inclusive and people feel like it's something that they can use as a tool and not something that they want to run away from. Um, and so, to that end, I'm working on a book that'll be out later this year called the K-12 Educators Data Guidebook. Very cool. It's great to hear all your backgrounds. And I think, Ryan, to your point, I mean, I, I know a big lesson of this entire COVID-19 pandemic for me has been uh, kind of watching how important it is not just to see the science develop, but the communication of science to the public, because that's actually where a lot of the problems have happened. But I think that really applies for any field, right? Like if we're not able to communicate with people outside of our niche, right, outside the people that work with us. Um, sometimes our work can kind of have limited impact or it's just, we can't talk to the people in our lives about what we're doing. They're like, what's happening? You, do you know how to use other words? So having said that, for Michael and I, who have a lot to learn on this subject, uh, first, we'd like to congratulate you all because you are the authors of a, a new book called Data Science and Education Using R. And I'm guessing uh, R is not just the letter R. I'm guessing we're gonna learn a lot more. I've already heard you reference this. Um, so congratulations on your book and couldn't you all tell us a little bit more th about this open access book, which is very exciting. Yeah, so uh, I'll start first just so what so R is a language um, is a programming language that uh, that we use to do um, statistics. And uh, you know, the, sort of the best way I think I could sort of explain this in is that um, it's kind of the, the difference between you know if you're gonna if you're gonna bake cookies for somebody you know you you can you can give them uh, you can bake the cookies and then you can give them the cookies right. Um, that's very and nice. on, like sorry. that's 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 nice. I, I'm I'm with you right now. With I the enjoy cookies. cookies and the analogy I'm in. Yeah, no, no, no. The, the, the baking analogy works out for a lot of reasons. Um, when we use programming languages to do statistics, what we do is we, it, it, rather than give somebody the cookies, what we do is we give them the recipe, right? And so co coding is like the recipe part of that. And the reason why um, this helps us is um, we could bake the cookies the way we want to, but let's say we bake chocolate chip cookies and now we want to bake 
um, peanut butter cookies, we can look at that recipe and say, oh, okay, well, we need to change out this one part of it. Um, and it's the exact same thing that we do with, uh, with, with code. And that's what this programming language R allows us to do. If you can contrast that with like working on a spreadsheet, you know, we can spend a couple of hours working on a spreadsheet and then I can give that to Jesse. And unless I had written down every step of the way what I had done, Jesse will only see the spreadsheet and none of the steps that went into making it. All she can do is use that spreadsheet or in the cookie analogy, all she can do is, uh, uh, is eat the chocolate chip cookies, but she Which can't seems good. do anything. That would be a okay like end on its own. I think you lost me with the analogy just because I would like the recipes and the cookies. Right. Um, but I, I get, I get what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what the, the book is about is using that learning how to use that language, uh, in the context and education uh, of education and also giving us some common language about that. Because when we bring new tools into this field, it's, uh, you know, we, we have to have some way to talk about it. And it's kind of lonely, frankly, if, uh, if you don't have anybody to talk with about it. And that's what you do. You mentioned using this in your job as administrator, and you were using R, and you found that the, um, uh, like the Google Sheets or Excel wasn't good enough. What were you able to do in R that you weren't able to do in your, you know, your typical um, Excel type of thing? Yeah, so a few different things, but I'll, I'll pick out one in particular, and, and that is the scale of the data work that, that we do, right? So um, let's say you're working with a data set of 30 students in one classroom. Pretty easy, I think, to do in Excel. Um, you know, you won't have the recipe, but but you can do that in Excel, and and do and you could do you could visualize, you could do some analysis, you can even fit some models if you know if you if you wanted to do that. Um, where the programming language comes in um, is in the way that it influences how much data you can work with. So um, uh, I'll get a little bit more specific. Since the programming language is the recipe, now you can apply that recipe to the 30 students that you're working, uh, the data set of 30 students that you're working on, but then you can also apply it to um, every classroom in that grade level. You can apply it to every grade level in that school, and then you can also do that on multiple schools, and then you can also do that in every school in the district. Um, I work at the county, so I do multiple districts. So you can see where if, when you can when you can pull that recipe out and then apply it, uh, that same kind of analysis to a bunch of different things, that is very difficult to do uh, in a spreadsheet. I think another aspect worth mentioning um, with a programming language is one, everything is written out. So every step is written out. And the language we use are, we use a specific syntax known as the tidyverse, which tends to be more verbose in terms of programming languages, but it really does lend itself to illiteracy. So when you're teaching how to program using the tidyverse, you can use a lot of literacy education principles in, in context clues and, and all of that. Um, but another aspect of using programming versus an Excel spreadsheet is that you can write your code and you attach it to your data. And if I'm a classroom teacher, what I can do is I can write a report in code that's just kind of a final report that I can hand off to my administrator. And I will spend time initially writing that report. But then next year, when I have a different group of students, my report's already written. I might have to change a couple of parameters, but now I, I might spend five or 10 minutes on that report instead of a couple hours. 
and I can click run. And now I've got all of my updated information. And with just a little bit of modification, I could start adding in past information for various comparisons. So there is an upfront cost, but the long-term savings is really that you get this quick, easy, and beautiful reporting capability that makes it easier to communicate what you're learning or what you're finding rather than spending hours kind of with your nose in a spreadsheet. Did I make a typo? Did I not make a typo? Did I remember to do this? And trying to untangle some of the, some of the mess you can get yourself in. So I'm a little bit, can you all go talk us through, sorry, let me start that question over. Can you talk us through some of the parts of the book, right? So I'm assuming part of this is just learning about like, oh, I need to start by downloading R, right? Like I need to install the program. And, and like, what are some of the steps that people kind of have to go through to kind of really learn how to do this work effectively? Yeah, I can take that. Those were my chapters um, and something that I feel very, very strongly about. Um, so we had this split up into two chapters. One was how to get started with R. And it was really focused on how do you download R? How do you download R Studio, which sits as an interface on top of R and it provides extra functionality. Um, and it's a much more pleasant experience for interacting with the R language. And so we kind of walk you through what that interface looks like, how to do some basic code writing, and then the basic functionality you need to be successful within R via R Studio. And then we moved into a foundational skills chapter. And this was really interesting to me because what I wanted to focus on was what are the mental models that you use when you're programming? And so it was a lot of thinking about what are the main components or buckets that you use in a general programming project? How do those different buckets talk to each other? And then how do you get help and how do you confront this realization in programming that you will always be looking something up. It's very rare for someone to sit down and just write a hundred lines of code without having to go to the internet or never encountering something they've never done before. And so how do we provide that level of metacognition in your learning experience that feels safe and approachable while still recognizing that, that this is going to be some level of challenge? Once the reader gets set up with R and has the basic sort of sentences that they would use uh, in the program, the next big mission of the book was to um, walk the reader through real life examples um, and analysis that they would do in, in a school setting, whether they are a uh, consultant working in education or you know maybe they work in higher ed and analyzing um, instructional output of instructional software. There's a lot of books um, on learning how to use R. We all have our favorites. One of the things that we wanted to do is, is make one that was specific for, um, for educators. And so we sort of mined the internet for um, publicly available data sets that we would use in our own work and build the activities around those, um, those, uh, those, those data sets. So looking at enrollment data, looking at um, click data through uh, for um, instructional software. So when people are sort of logging on and, 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 um, and taking classes online, all the sort of output that comes out of that and what we can learn from it. There's a chapter about um, analyzing tweets and to get at um, people's opinions about a particular topic. 
Um, and so these are all things that, that you see used in, in a lot of different um, sort of education jobs. Um, and, you know, it was really important for us to, it's, you know, we really wanted to name, it's tough to learn how to program. It just, it really is. Um, and, and so we wanted to not add to that friction by, by putting a bunch of arbitrary data sets that, you know, people sort of wouldn't actually use in real life. So you, you hit on an example that, that I can kind of relate to. So I've done social media research before and, and I've used very simple programs that pull tweets into like a Google sheet and they have, you know, they give me like seven or eight categories of information from, you know, sometimes the, the geolocation or the profile information and then there's the actual tweets. And so I'm able then to open that up, create some new columns and go in and do some analysis of that, right? I'm very much a qualitative researcher. So I'm very curious and maybe uh, Josh would be able to speak to this because this is his area. I'm very curious about like, so what could I do in R to analyze, for example, say I wanted to pull up some tweets because um, I'm interested in uh, a Twitter chat on, you know, that, that social studies teachers had right after the insurrection where they're trying to figure out how do I teach about this next day? And I'm wanting to do an analysis, for example, on, on thousands of tweets related to that. What can R do that I couldn't do in these other kind of just, you know, simpler spreadsheets in a Google Sheet? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Dan. That's a great question. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll try to give an example from maybe my own my own work, and then I'll, I'll give an example of a project the student is uh, starting that I think is maybe social studies relevant and could maybe illustrate where maybe maybe there could be a role for for using R even in the social studies classroom. So at least you'll, you'll have to let me know what you think. Um, so first example. Um, you mentioned about locations. And so I think about the Twitter data I often ask, uh, analyze. Um, and I just wanna say at the outset here, um, a big part of doing social media research and education is thinking really carefully about the, like whether you should do something, even if you, you can do it. So you could imagine cases where like we're talking about like maybe students having some kind of identifiable location. Do we really wanna geolocate students? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, and, and Dan, I know you've done a lot of work on this. I just came across your, your paper memorably titled Don't Be Evil, a critique of how Google has sort of infiltrated many parts of uh, kind of online learning today. So, do you have anything to add on that? No, I, I just am encouraging Google not to be evil, which sometimes they're straying from their original vision, I would say. But but I think I like where you're going with all this, right? I'm feeling a very um, uh, Jurassic Park chaos Ian Malcolm vibe right here. Like we we should not, we should we need to think about just because we can do something, maybe we should not do that, right? Or else dinosaurs will come get us. Right. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so um, so so just one example of something you could do is maybe, uh, uh, maybe you collected tweets from uh, SS Chat, um, a very widely used uh, hashtag by social studies educators. Um, and you were interested in understanding from where those participants were tweeting. Are they all from states around kind of Texas or, or Michael, if you're very involved, Texas and Massachusetts, or are there also teachers from all across the United States and maybe even around the world? And so you are looking at a spreadsheet with what if, so this is the data I've collected, has a column for location. And that is a field 
that Twitter provides. We can talk about whether or not they should do that. And we can also talk about what we should put in that, but provides a column with uh, Twitter users' self-reported locations. Some people say the world. Some people say wherever makes me happy. Many people say Lansing, Michigan or Knoxville, Tennessee, two places where I used to live. One, well, I'll leave that there. <laughs> um, I mean, it's okay, but um, uh, you get the idea here. And so that's really good information, but at scale, it's kind of tough to know what to do with it. Do I, do I just kind of count up the states? That takes a lot of time. Oh my gosh, all right, I'll look up, you know, anyone that mentions Tennessee or TN, we'll put them in a Tennessee bucket. And before I know it, 600 people in, I'm tired and I wanna go eat a cookie, back to our discussion earlier. Um, and so there are techniques in R where you can, uh, you can basically give R that information in natural text form. So it'll take someone who says anywhere in the world, you can, it takes someone that says wherever I'm happy and it also takes someone that says Oklahoma and someone that says uh, Lansing, Michigan and it will provide an estimate of their location. And these estimates have uncertainty around them. Um, there's some past research that's shown them to be fairly accurate to the state level but not very accurate to the level of like a city or a school district or something like that. And then you could create a map where you say, here's where SS chat participants are coming from. We see they're coming from all 50 states, cool. Um, they're also coming from Canada and there's a few from India and a couple from Australia who happen to tweet. And so that's an example of something where you could do something at scale that would be really, it'd be possible to do manually, maybe, yeah, us, but it'd be hard to do. Uh, any, any reactions to that first that first example before I want to talk about what students could do too? So so R is helpful in creating visualizations. Is that one of the 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 things? Because that yeah, you're right. Like out of a Google sheet, I actually maybe you can, but I don't know how to to create any visualizations or translate to maps. I'm sure Google has some way to do it and can locate my backyard on Google Earth, and then everyone can look at the where the tweets came from me sitting in my backyard. I'm just kidding. I don't have a backyard. So people are misled now. Sorry, Google. I'm not giving you all that information. But but so is R is R is helpful with with visual with providing and helping to create visualizations that then of course would help to communicate some of that information to other audiences. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, Jesse, after you. Sorry. I was going to say my I see my co-authors nodding and then I saw my co-author speaking. <laughs> I would say R probably sets the standard for data visualizations uh, in public as far as publication quality images go. So if you want to create a stunning visualization based off of data, R would probably be your go-to. There are different directions you can go from there. You can also do things in JavaScript, but if you are seeing a scientific publication, um, the publications in our book, those are all built using R. And, also and I would add on, oh, sorry, Ryan, after you part, gosh, I managed to interrupt both of my co-authors in about 60 seconds. No, right. I was just going to say really quick, one of the ways that I found R was I did some research. I wanted to do more visualizations like what the ones that we find in um, The Economist and 538 and New York Times Upshot. Um, and so I found some interviews with the data journalists who work there and um, not all, but many of them sort of brought up R that was like a pattern that I saw is that's what they used as the base of those visualizations before it went to like the creative design team that would sort of layer things on top of that. Go ahead, Josh. Um, only thing I'd add is um, maps are, are really uh, great in R and um, maps can tell a really complex story. Um, maps that present change over time, maybe even more so. And there's, there's really great functionality to take basically spreadsheet data and from that to create a map. Um, of course, you need something like a, an identifier or a latitude or a longitude, but, but from there you can create, like Jesse and, and Ryan both said, really, really high quality maps. 
Yeah, I'm hearing maps. I'm hearing change over time, longitude and latitude. Ooh, you're speaking social studies language now. I dig it so far. And some of the visuals that uh, Jesse has been sharing in our little chat has been kind of amazing to, to look at. So, which, of course, which, of course, we will add to the show notes. Josh, you were talking about ways in which uh, students could potentially use R. Yeah, well, this is... um so. So I'm, um, Michael, as I mentioned, I'm a former science teacher and the work I'm doing in classrooms is with, in collaboration with science teachers, almost exclusively, some math teachers as well. So I don't have the experience to really say what would be practical in a social studies classroom, but I do have an example project that an undergraduate student here is involved in that involves social media data again, that maybe could illustrate the kinds of things students could maybe do with kind of access to large data and maybe a tool like R. Um, we, uh, uh, my, uh, kind of research team has collected many posts on Facebook from schools and districts. And I'm a student who is interested in uh, how schools and districts responded to the murder of George Floyd through social media. First of all, did they respond? Second of all, which districts and schools responded? And third, how did they respond? Um, this is the kind of thing where you could imagine a qualitative study. And in fact, I can imagine many, many very, very um, important qualitative studies. Um, where R could come in is something like allowing you to access a collection of posts from many, many, many schools and districts across the country and to maybe target something like the 100 largest uh, districts or randomly picked schools from large districts or districts of different sizes or in different states. Um, you could imagine kind of selecting these purposefully, um, uh, looking specifically at posts from the Minneapolis uh, school district and how they communicated. They, they, they must have had to about, uh, about racism and, and how race and racism impacted students in their community. Um, so R would let us do something like maybe count up the districts um, and see how many posts they, um, they shared during different time periods or to filter the data based on the names of these districts and, and really then dive in more deeply, maybe interpretively and qualitatively in, into looking at the posts of specific districts. So I, I mentioned that just because it's a, it's a study that I think has some social studies kind of uh, embedded kind of ideas. Oh, um, and so, yeah. Okay. Michael, do you have any reactions to that? I know that was, that was kind of a, a lot of different directions there that I, I laid out. No, that sounds really cool, actually. Um, we are, uh, our students uh, in our sophomore year are doing civics projects in Massachusetts. All students have to do a, a civics project. And that actually seems like that could be really in line with that um, type of project that they would be doing. That's really cool. You well, can- if your students, oh, Yeah, sorry, Jesse, after you. <laughs> I, was, I was just gonna say uh, kind of some of what Josh is talking about is you can, there with our, you have the ability to do a um, sentiment analysis and kind of a text analysis and start extracting meaning from large bodies of text, like a collection of tweets. And I should say that it's not sophomores across Massachusetts, but every high school student across Massachusetts has to do it. We are just doing it sophomore year. Hmm. I think this is really cool. I like the concept of learn, learning a programming language. Uh, I love some of the data visualization that uh, Jesse was sharing. Um, now, what's like the, the barrier of entry for me? Um, where can I learn? So obviously you're, you have your book and uh, wait, your book is open access. That's interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, so it was important for us to have the to write the book in in the open. And so what what that means is that um, while we write the book, um, we make the entire process available online, um, both the text, so sort of the narrative part of it, but then also all of the code. And philosophically, it just comes from this place of this is information that we want for people to have. Um, I think that's one sort of major principle there for us, um, you know, for, for people who, um, you know, want, just want to check it out, you know, before they pay for it, like that's like we wanted for, you know, for that to happen. There's a, there's a element of um, what's in data science is known as reproducibility. So this idea of like, if we can get it to work for us, um, then in order to build trust with the community that we're trying to help, they should be able to get it to work um, on their computers also. And if it can't, there has to be some way that they can communicate with us and say, hey, we did this thing that you said would work and it didn't, we need to fix it. So there, there's that sort of element to it. And then I would say the third part is just this belief that we need to write this in a way that really connects with the people that we're trying to help. Um, and, and one of the ways that we do that is to make it available to them as we write it so that they can, they can respond to it and say like, yeah, this part here is really working for me. I like that you use this data set or I don't understand what's happening at this part. And that way we don't have to wait until the print version comes out before we discover that there were pieces of this that were not meaningful for the people that were trying to help. So the book is available sort of in two, two formats. One is um, available for free to read online at datascienceandeducation.com. I think we're going to put that um, link in the notes. Um, but then you can also buy it in print um, through Routledge and Amazon and, and all the other places that, that you buy books. And I would say a barrier to entry is you do need a computer um, and you do need an internet connection. And there are some ways around that, but ultimately I would say those are probably your, your initial barriers. And there's a really interesting project coming out of Johns Hopkins University with um, the Chromebook Data Science Project where they are getting programming with R to run on Chromebooks. So you've got now a low cost computer and an internet connection and you've got this world-class faculty developing a curriculum for students in underserved communities in the Baltimore area. So one um, sort of just related to both uh, Jesse and Ryan's, Ryan's points, um, maybe something that's of interest to social studies scholars and um, social studies educators and, and other scholars and educators um, is this idea of sharing our work kind of publicly and in the open. Um, so it's, it's something that many scholars do across fields. They share, um, they write articles that are meant to be accessed widely and, and to be readable by a wide audience. Um, they share resources that have the same kind of, are intended to have the same characteristics. And, and many educators too are very generous with what they share um, through social media, through their websites. Um, and, and so um, a, a principle that we, um, uh, that kind of guided a lot of our work was let's let's put it out there and share it. And if other people find it useful, then that's as much of an impact as as selling a copy of a book. Um, and I, I guess that kind of comes from us being in a position where we we don't strictly need the revenue uh, from the book to support our livelihood. So we're not saying that every book should be open access like this, um, but. Uh, we were kind of inspired by other authors in the R in the R world who did this, and um, I guess we'd kind of very very humbly urge, um, especially other scholars and and teachers, to share their work as openly as they can, and and let others um, use it and reuse it, and and tell them kind of 
what they like about it and what they would improve about it and kind of create a cycle of kind of uh, uh, benefiting the area that we're trying to uh, bolster, know, know more about and um, do inquiry within. So this is this is really interesting. At the beginning of the podcast, I was a little skeptical. I was like, hmm, you know, what am I? I'm a social studies guy. What am I going to do with this computer programming for data analysis and these other things that seemed outside? But you all have made a pretty convincing case. So, what advice do you have for other scholars interested in this, educators, and students who want to start using R um, to start doing work? What what can you tell them? Uh, my personal philosophy is that learning is relational and you learn better when you're part of a community. And I think that the R community is one of the strongest learning communities out there. Um, it is very, very welcoming to beginners and to newbies and to anybody who is just interested in learning how to, to work with R in any capacity. So Twitter is a big place using the hashtag RStats. There's also the R for Data Science online learning community. There's the R Studio community platform. The list of community resources and places to find your group to learn with in R are overwhelming. And I think that would be my advice is to find your learning community and go all in because they're there to support you um, in your learning journey and it is going to be literally a matter of weeks to months before you now have something to turn around and contribute to the people coming up behind you. 100% agree with everything that Jesse said. Our community is wonderful um, and yeah, just great. I would say um, find as, as, you, as you learn our, um, take your time and when you get a few lines of code to work and you can recognize um, something that you previously did in Excel that you can do in R, um, make it personal and personally meaningful to you and, and, and try to do it in R instead of in Excel. Um, and, you know, we should name that. So we talked to a lot of learners uh, to research for the book. And one theme that came up is people said, well, it's hard to learn R because I know I could do it faster in Excel. Um, and that is a real thing. There's, there's a learning curve where, you, where you're kind of going a little bit slower um, for the payoff of, of, of getting um, a lot faster later or, or working with data at larger scale. Um, but I just think it's always more personally meaningful if you can solve a problem that is a, like a real sort of problem for you instead of one that's sort of arbitrarily defined in a book. So once you get a few lines of code working, if you can identify a thing at work, even if it's just like changing the name of a column or something like that, write up some code and it can be incredibly empowering and motivating to get that to work in a, in a, in a, in a way that's meaningful to you. A slightly different perspective because I have nothing to add to what Jesse and Ryan suggested. But if, if you're in the position of teaching somebody something like code, um, and maybe this can generalize to other things that are hard. Um, um, really um, start with the, um, the view that motivation is really, really important early on and fragile for, for learners. And so especially for things that are not familiar to us or that, are, that we see as sort of not something we could do or something that's too technical for us or something that's too artistic for us, um, those first experiences are sort of really like 
almost vulnerable or possibly vulnerable moments for learners. And so really trying to bolster confidence and motivation and interest as much as you're trying to bolster like knowledge of some specific skill that can come later, but kind of get some, some early wins under your belt. That's, that's really the most important goal, I think for, um, at least for, for learning R and maybe in maybe some other things. That's, all of that advice is really helpful. And certainly it's nice to know that you wouldn't be on your own, that you can join a community and just start to investigate these things. And we have uh, broached similar topics on this podcast before in episode 87, we actually talked about data visualization and literacy in social studies. And I could see R being another way to approach some of those. So if you never listened to that episode with Dr. Schreiner, you could, you could go back and listen to that, combine it with this episode and think about it. And for our listeners, for the rest of education and our, our scholars doing research, I just think, um, you know, uh, it, and now I see it. I see some ways for, for, for using data in new ways and analyzing it and collecting it in ways that maybe I hadn't thought about before. So thank you all so much. Michael, where, where are you on this? We, we started out by, we got you with the cookies and then we introduced yeah. like the cookie generating like recipe uh, metaphor. And I wasn't too into that just because I do, I, I, I would much rather you just give me a cookie. Um, but no, I actually, I think it's kind of cool. It's interesting. We're weird. I, I was just in a meeting this week in which we were talking about data visualization and potentially using Excel or using Google Sheets more. Um, and so it's interesting to then think about this in ways that I could make um, some neater looking graphics or whatnot uh, using data. So um, I'm interested. I'm actually more interested than I was uh, at the beginning of, of our talk. Not to say that I wasn't interested before, but I'm, I'm interested. I will, uh, I will speak on behalf of my colleagues and the rest of the R community that anything we can do to get you started and to help you in the early days of your journey as well as down the road. I know that all of us are more than happy to hop on a call or answer questions or email, um, anything we can do to, to kind of make the way a little easier for you. Uh, just to add on to that, um, I would say not only are social studies educators and social studies teacher educators and scholars welcome or invited, but... Um, probably really necessary. As um, Jesse sort of suggested, data science wasn't really defined and now it's sort of starting to take form um, kind of in industry and at the like college level and starting to be defined at the K-12 level. And if we leave out um, humanists and social studies scholars, um, we run the risk of defining data science really narrowly and in a way that doesn't really address the kind of problems that we actually face like as a nation, as a society, as a culture. But we really appreciate you all for coming on the podcast and chatting with us. It was great. It was. I think we did very good as a group. Yes. Where uh, can our listeners find you and your, your work online? Obviously, we'll have links to uh, your book. Uh, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. So twitter.com. And the username is Carisi. So that is K-I-E-R-I-S-I. And I am also on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. The username is Rye underscore Estreado, R-Y underscore E-S-T-R-E-L-L-A-D-O. And I will fill in as Josh Rosenberg and say that I am on Twitter at J Rosenberg, B-E-R-G-6432. That was fun. I've never got to pretend like I was a guest. You did good. <laughs> You did good. So again, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope to discussion. Hold on, hold on, Michael, before you say that. 
And we also should all make sure that, uh, you know, the, the website is uh, datascienceineducation.com and you can find all the information about the book there. So that's the key one. We will have that in the show notes. But again, it's datascienceineducation.com. So again, we thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Now, if you... No, sorry, that was quick. It, you caught me off guard. Sorry for having to. No, because I have to do the next line because this is my big line. I just did your line. Oh, okay. So I'm doing right. double lines. Are you going to go? Okay. Yes, I'm going to go. At the Vision of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and we do too, hit us up. We're at Visions of Ed on the Twitter. We're also on Facebook. And um, if you haven't already, and really, there's little excuses, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And if you would like to go to Apple Podcasts and look at our five-star reviews, you could use R to possibly data visualize where the greatest people in the world are coming from. Mm-hmm. You can add yourself to that list too by adding a five-star review yourself. Please do. It helps uh, people find us because that's how Apple's algorithms work on their podcasts. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. <laughs> Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.